Okay? Okay, we're on. Uh, uh, this is the third evening of, as you, most of you know, of, of a translation series that was planned uh, to coincide with the publication of a literary hand, handbook, a literary translator's handbook, which is now in hand at last. Last we heard about a week ago, it was on the truck. Something happened to the truck. Uh, at the first evening, three weeks ago, we discussed changing attitudes toward literary translation in this country oh, over the last few decades. And uh, there was evidently, it was agreed by all involved that, that there's been a, an increasing receptivity toward literary translation in, in the past several decades. Last week, we discussed the economics of literary translation, how one tries to ascertain and then gain the translation rights to a text. Uh, and tonight, we'll talk a little more about choosing a text for translation, but mainly we'll be exploring what happens after the contract has been signed and the translator, editor, and publisher have a job to do, namely to get the book out. Um, our panelists tonight are on my far left. Bill Zavatsky, a translator and the editor of Sun Books, and publisher of Sun Books and Sun Magazine. Uh, on my immediate left is Rick Lesser, uh, a poet and translator from uh, Swedish and German. Uh, I am Peter Glasgow, and I, I, I chair the Penn Translation Committee. On my immediate right is Marion Schedule, who is uh, I, now a freelance editor. Before, for many years, she was associated with Dutton and with uh, and 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 with Viking and with Knopf, and she is a a novelist as well. And on my far right is David Reef, who is senior e editor at uh, Forrest Rouse in Giroux. Um, the format tonight: I'll be asking each of the panelists a question, uh, one by one, and then the others will also respond to that same question. Uh, at the end of the, the panelists' involvement with questions, uh, I will open it up and open the questions to the audience here. But I would like to ask you, first of all, to come to the mic so that your questions can be recorded and also that the questions be as, con as concrete and informational as possible, because the whole idea behind the series is to uh, get important information out to, to, to working translators and would-be translators. Uh, as I said, tonight we'll be talking about how to get a book out uh, but the books we're talking about, literary translations, uh, in every case we have a very peculiar situation uh, that we have an author, that is a translator, who is not really an author. Or is he? Uh, how much authorial responsibility ought to be expected of this perhaps quasi-author? Uh, or should there be, in fact, no distinction between a quote, real author and a translator. And it is against this somewhat gray area uh, that I'll start my questions. Uh, David, uh, 
how does an editor go about finding a text and choosing a translator and in the long run building a foreign list? Well, let, let me start by saying that I'm not sure that there is an increased receptivity to translation in this country. I rather think that although the smaller presses which have arisen or been revitalized in the last <coughs> 15 years have done wonderful books, that still if you, if you were actually to look, that at best you could say that translated books were holding their own, and more likely you would probably say that they were occupying a smaller share of sales of attention despite exceptions like say the Umberto Eco book um, I think that we have to be somewhat careful in this group to remember what trade publishing is actually like and that by definition a translation is first of all more costly because with the exception of the German government largely speaking no subsidies are paid so you're adding to whatever advance you pay whatever the cost of the translation is no matter how badly translators are paid, non-commercial projects, in non-commercial projects, the addition of, say, five or $6,000 of a translator's fee might very well make the difference between a publisher taking on a project uh, or not taking on one. So with that, uh, what, what did General Haig say? I'd like to caveat you on that, Senator. Uh, with, with that caveat in mind, I, I would say three things. It, in, in, in publishing houses with traditions of publishing works and translation, I think that the editors who interest themselves in such books try to pay as much attention as they can to what's going on in Europe and in Latin America. We must start out by saying that we're quite ignorant, I think, as a group, as a corporate group about either Africa or Asia. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, second, once you have a certain number of foreign authors, I think that they themselves recommend projects. Certainly, I, who publish a number of Latin American writers and a number of writers from Eastern Europe, regularly ask and try to pick the brains of those writers for people whom they think well of. And certainly at Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux, a number of writers we published recently, we published because, say, a Joseph Brodsky or a Carlos Fuentes has recommended another author. Uh, the, o the other part of the answer, at least from where I work, is that um, there are a certain number of translators in New York who are in some sense, emissaries or propagandists for the language or culture which, from, from which they translate. And so a person like Richard Howard from French or Gregory Rabassa from Spanish have probably been more responsible for, for some of the best work translated from those languages into English than uh, perhaps the publishers in those countries or... Um, uh, the editors in question. Uh, do any of you have any? Uh, well, first of all, is there anybody here to caveat the caveat? And uh, if not, 
uh, to respond to, to, to the rest of the general question about how one um, uh, finds a text and chooses a translator and in the long run builds a foreign list. Uh, well, I say that it happens very rarely that a translator will submit uh, a project for translation. Uh, and even if it comes kind of from out of the arena that David mentioned, uh, it probably will be vetted by those same people. Uh, in, in other words, they serve as kind of an advisory board, uh, translators that you've used, uh, authors that you've done translations from, you go back to them for their advice. Let me ask Rika, uh, how have publishers found you? <laughs> <laughs> it happens in different ways. I did want to caveat part of the caveat because it isn't simply not true that the Germans are the only foreign government to subsidize. The only reliable foreign government. <laughs> I, they're the only people who actually pay. It's true that others solicit your your recommendations for subsidy, but then you wait years and years, for example, from the Italians or the French to actually get the money. The Scandinavian countries operate in a different way. No, it's absolutely true. Uh, if you're talking, that's true, sure. But Scandinavia, as you know, is very underrepresented and perhaps <laughs> less real to us than it should be. <laughs> perhaps it is. I think a great deal of responsibility that translators somehow take upon themselves, we believe should rest on the shoulders of the editors and publishers, especially considering what we get paid to do our work. We're, this is probably going to respond to a different one of Peter's <laughs> questions rather than this question, but yes, the translator is a very important link and perhaps the most important link and industry-wide, whatever that means, and profession-wide, there are no standards. There's a great deal of haphazardness which results in translators um, trying to advocate certain books from different countries from which there are not established links and coming up against a great deal of um, disinterest, opposition, or the typical, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I think that's all I want to say. Oh. So in <laughs> a way, in a way, Bill, did you want to add anything to this? Well, I, I, I guess I sort of represent the, um, the, the uh, idiosyncratic um, 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 idiot savant approach in all of this in that um, Sun, which is a small press, we published about 35 books uh, over the last 10 years, mostly on federal and state subsidy, um, really um, grows out of my own um, tastes in literature completely. And um, and my own um, attempts or successful or unsuccessful to translate various writers and my knowledge of what writers were interested in, what poets or prose writers and 
that they were doing uh, uh, somebody whose work had never brought into, been brought into English. Uh, for example, there's uh, a lot of uh, writers had translated um, numerous of Max Jacob's uh, uh, prose poems, but nobody somehow had ever gathered these things up into a book. And uh, a poet named Michael Brownstein, a uh, poet and fiction writer, undertook to do this. And somehow, uh, well, I knew Michael, and uh, we connected, and so that became a book. And I was very happy to do that, because I think Jacob's work is only beginning to be uh, uh, English. And uh, in another couple of years, we're going to do a selected prose of Max Jacob, which will draw on a lot of um, uh, wonderful text, including some unpublished manuscript. Um, blindly out of the mail, I had come to me a wonderful motorcycle, a wonderful group of uh, translations uh, by George Bogan of Jules Superviel. And um, I s first saw some of these poems in, um, now this is a project that I really didn't initiate, but I saw some of these poems in the American Poetry Review and I said, gee, this is very interesting. I wonder who's going to publish this book. And about two weeks later, the manuscript came to Sun in the mail. And I thought, gee, I must be doing something right. I must be sending out the right signals. Um, another book that we did was a very strange text by uh, an obscure French writer named Raymond Roussel called How I Wrote Some of My Books or How I Wrote Certain of My Books. Uh, Roussel was an obsession um, of a writer, trans a writer, painter friend of mine named Trevor Wingfield. And he had laboriously translated this completely impossible to translate text uh, that Roussel had left behind after his uh, untimely demise about how he wrote these bizarre novels and poems that he had produced in his career. Uh, well, I came upon that because I was interested in Roussel and I knew what Trevor was doing. And So the point being that um, I guess as a writer I've had the luxury of being able to kind of look over my writer friend's shoulders and say, aha, here comes a book, or why don't you do this? And so what this has led to for Sun is um, over the past year or so, we've been able to um, commission our first translations, and we're going to bring out a selected essays of René Domal, who is an author mostly known here for um, his novel Mount Analog, which is an unfinished but very interesting book. Uh, a wonderful novel, actually. And um, so, you know, why didn't anybody ever translate René Domal's essays? That's sort of interesting. He's not that unknown and not that weird. And so uh, then another book we're doing, which is sort of unknown and weird, is a book of short stories by uh, a writer named Valérie Larbeau. And I got interested in Valérie Larbeau because I and a collaborator named Ron Paget had translated uh, uh, a book of his poems. And I wanted to see more Larbo in English, so I found a young woman who, from Barnard who was very, uh, very talented and said, can you do these? And she loved the book and she did it. And what this is finally leading to, and I think it will, I hope and think that will be, it will be a very interesting event um, uh, in publishing, unless I am sorely misjudging the situation, is that we are going to bring out the first volume of Michelle Larisse's autobiography. Um, which is called Biffer. Uh, this is part of a four-volume autobiography that is pretty well acknowledged around uh, the Western world as one of the most important 20th century autobiographies. And how come nobody ever translated this book? 
And Lydia Davis, who is um, growing every day in reputation as a translator, is doing this for us now. And we have just cut a deal with Gallimard to do all four volumes of the auto autobiography over the next 10 or 12 years, which is going to be quite a bit of work for Lydia Davis. But uh, nevertheless, I think an important project and the kind of thing that I think only as a small independent publisher I could have uh, started from scratch. So this is a kind of other side of uh, well, what it sounds to me that we've, we've moved a little bit toward defining that gray area a little bit more black and white. It sounds as though that uh, uh, to be a translator is as difficult to get your work published as a writer. So in that sense, writers are, translators are, are real writers. Uh, now, uh, the other thing that we've seen here, I think, is that everybody seems to talk about uh, translators as advocates of a foreign literature or a foreign culture to a certain degree. Now, this brings up another question, which I'm going to ask Marion. Uh, uh, all right, the trans translators are advocates, cultural advocates. Uh, uh, they are the driving wedge between one culture and another. Uh, but what about an editor? How expert does the editor have to be, do you think, in the language uh, 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 of the book uh, from which it's, the language from which the book you're working on uh, has been translated? Oh, I know there's a lot of disagreement on this question, uh, but from my past experience working with translators and from the experience of many editors in book publishing who also work with translators, I would say that it is not necessary to be expert in the language. It is necessary to have sensitivity to both that culture and that language as well as the English language. Both are very important. Um, there, are, there is a very tricky area where a translator may run into difficulty uh, with the translation, say, if it's uh, dealing with uh, spoken language, slang. Uh, there are no dictionaries to go to to find the right words. And this is where an editor with sensitivity <coughs> to both English language and the culture from which the original, uh, on which the original is based, uh, can help very much. Uh, when you're doing uh, a book, say a classic, uh, perhaps retranslating it, uh, a sensitive editor will know or sense when the translation, the translated word, needs to be of the era or brought up to date. Nothing is worse than anachronisms in translation. And a sensitive editor, again, can help the translator spot those anachronisms. Uh, it's perfectly possible for an editor to be a good editor of a translation without being expert in the language per se. Does anybody care to comment on that? I think at some point you have to find an expert or you can find yourself in deep trouble. 
Um, and I know that, and I say that both as a translator whose command of French is far from <laughs> uh, superb, imperfect, and um, as a publisher who uh, worries about whether what I'm publishing is completely accurate, and I can look at it to to such an extent. And then uh, I, ha I really feel I have to turn it over to somebody who not only knows that author, but who knows the language, uh, if not as a second language or a first language, uh, can really deliver uh, some sort of expert opinion on this. So I really feel that, uh, um, and I, I think we wouldn't disagree here, mm -hmm. that somebody has to come in and say, wait a minute, this doesn't mean horse. It means uh, bench. Well, who the you, entire novel is based, you know. Right. So, uh, who is this expert? Well, it can be anyone. It can be a, prof a professor. There are people at Columbia that I had as professors and so forth that I try to go back and rely on. And often, uh, something will go through the hands of two or three people. In other words, your expert is. Are you asking the expert to vet the text? Or is it, does it go beyond Which it? Which text? Vet the text. Vet the text. Vet the translation. To perform, uh, Gregory Rabasa talked about uh, uh, Dr. Horrendo, you know, <laughs> the, uh, who, the man who actually, after the book has been published, uh, actually sits Rewrites down, the translation. No, goes through all 500 mm -hmm. pages mm -hmm. and reads it against the original and finds every tiny mistake. Uh, uh, no, do you hire Dr. Horrendo? Is he here? <laughs> uh, well, tiny mistakes, you, you, I mean, you're not going to catch all the mistakes, and you're not even going to catch all the things that people will agree that, that are mistakes. Right. So um, you, you, you just try to, you try for accuracy, and you try for literary qualities, and um, if somebody's handing me a Swedish translation and I don't understand anything about Swedish and I try to get somebody to read it and they say to me, look, this is just this is not what's happening in the Swedish then I really have to think about whether I want to publish this book Yes, but you're making, this is an absolutely Manichaean choice that's being proposed here that I don't think really reflects the way these things actually work First of all, if you're stupid enough to hire a translator who's going to mistake the word horse for some other word, then you're in deep trouble to begin with. And, I mean, one rule, it seems to me... Well, you have the luxury of hiring translators, and right. I don't necessarily well, have that luxury. All right, well, the then, you have speaking from my lucky perch, I would say that for trade publishers, leaving it only at trade publishers, that I would not be hiring a translator in whom I didn't have confidence on that level that the question is not going to be one of accuracy. There is, of course, a larger question about translation, as everybody here knows perfectly well. There are, in some sense, two schools of thought about translation. One is that one should err on the side of accuracy to the original, and the other is that a translation is always a kind of transformation and that languages simply can't be rendered literally one into the other. And, of course, the editor... The, the, the kind of translation that, say, a publishing house or an editor is going to produce is going to depend to some degree on the views of that editor about that subject, assuming, again, that the person you're dealing, the translator with whom you're dealing, is competent. Now, the, the question, it seems to me, of using academic judges uh, afterwards, a bit the way university presses function in the acceptance of academic manuscripts, 
Professor X writes a book on the Taiping Rebellion. It's sent to professors Y and Z. They say this is a very good book. The book is published. That's how, say, university press functions. Where the synd- and then the syndics sort of go over the choices and ask a couple of people. The, uh, using expert advice, it seems to me, particularly in the field of literature, is a very dangerous game. And it seems to be certainly in a translator what one one insists on competence in the original language, but one looks for the ability to write beautiful English. And if and I frankly think that more translators know about beautiful English than college professors. And yet why is it that the horror stories I always hear about translations and about literary translations have to do with um, text being completely rewritten because vast areas of error were found? No doubt that it happens. Uh, it happens frequently. Can I? Yes, I'd like, I was going to ask. I'd like to written. ask a question. Um, I've had editors who both know the languages I translate and who don't know the languages I translate. And again, on different projects, I've found that when I translate poetry, it's um, editors are very reluctant to touch anything, even some consider punctuation. Um, Many don't. They're just too afraid to touch the stuff. This, on one book of poems, I in fact translated for your house. I had three editors on the same book, two of whom did not know German, and one who did. And I would say only because it was poetry was the editor's reading of the text only he only asked questions of accuracy. Just perhaps you made a mistake in this phrase. No questions of craft. It's very different when you're translating prose and when your editor does not know the original language, then only questions of style are addressed. Occasionally you get an editor who knows the original language and knows English, but Do I know if the editor is a writer? Does the translator know that the editor is a good writer? Does the translator know that the editor's command of the language and or culture is like or unlike his? They're very gray areas. I'm saying it changes from book to book and project to project. And it's a very difficult area, particularly. I believe in recreation. I don't believe in the literal school of translation, nonetheless, when you're hired by a trade house to do a job of recreation, you are, in fact, asked, you're being asked to work at it as if it were a literal rendering. You're being asked to do a translation, and you're being selected if the editor is intelligent because of the work you've done in the past or because of the samples you've sent which have been admired by the editors in that house. I mean, I don't think you need to get uh, too theoretical about this. There's one other point I think has to be made, and that is that it is obviously editors approach, I think most editors would agree that they approach poems, the editing of poems, with considerably more trepidation than they would the editing of prose. You can argue that an English sentence, a a properly crafted English sentence, has a certain clear nature in prose, which editors, whether they're writers or not, are, are, if they're any good, fairly 
uh, conversant with. With poetry, it's rather trickier business, and just it's harder to edit a poet in English than a prose writer in English. I mean, I don't see why it should be any different in translation. Well, I think that there's an assumption. There's there's an assumption I make as a translator slash recreator that a translation is only a record of a reading, and sure. it's only as good as the reader who reads it, and only as good it's only as good as his writing is. When it comes to prose, I don't think that the same standards actually apply, or they don't seem to apply in the translations that I, I see around me. And I think editors probably don't see it the same way. I'm not, I know I'm not being terribly clear about this at the moment. Are, are, would you say that the editors, uh, they get closer into the text for a poem, or are they more, uh, do they approach it more as a sacred text? Is that the I problem? think they're approached more as sacred texts, whereas prose, prose styles can also differ from language to language. Well, would the, would, do you think that, that given that, uh, that the editors on your experience, in your experience have done a better job as editors working with prose texts that you've translated? I'm very grateful for editors' help at all times. Right. I'm just mentioning that they are more likely to give help in certain kinds of books than others, and that certain projects have to be initiated in fact, it seems that they have to be initiated by translators because the editors are not necessarily in a position to recognize the prose styles or the poetry styles that are going on. In by definition, other... certain things can't be recognized. I mean, take Russian poetry, or take the poem, say, of Joseph Brodsky. They run. Therefore, the task of any translator is not only recreation, but just basically changing basic structure of the poem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, it, I, I'm not sure that, uh, first of all, I, I'm not sure that this question of sacred text obtains since, by definition, the, the, it is recreation in a lot of poems. I do agree with you that, that probably editors are more likely to expect in the translation of poetry for the translator to have the basic idea of what the recreation is going to be. And assuming that, that the translator and editor get along, that this is that, that, that the editor is going to accept that and perhaps provide less help than, than they might. But the only thing about what you said that worries me is, is what you're talking about, editors, depending on uh, the question of how good a writer the editor is. By definition, editors are in you know, the famous phrase, blocked writers and therefore don't write. And in fact, I think many people who worked with editors would, would be able to say quite, agree that an editor is someone who is aware that in a sentence something is wrong, and if an editor is any good, the writer will see that, that, that there's something wrong in the particular sentence. But probably the thing the editor thinks is wrong is not what's wrong. Mm. That's, that is really, the, that is a good point. <laughs> Gregory Rabassa said in the first session that if there's something wrong with the translation, uh, you don't need the original. It will show itself in the text mm -hmm. itself. It will jump out mm -hmm. at you, and your editor's instinct 
whatever that is, uh, will will tell you. Uh, Marion, have you had have you edited poetry as well as, as yes? Have you uh, found was the approach had to be different? Yes, it is because in essence, the translator of a poem has to be a poet himself or herself, and uh, the editor is not a poet. And uh, when you're dealing with what, in essence, is another whole new creative act, which is what translating poetry is, uh, you're not going to question the second creative act of the translators unless there's something, again, that strikes you as obviously wrong, that is so far uh, from the spirit of the original that uh, warning signs go up immediately. But that very seldom happens. Uh, I know, having done both the prose and the poetry of Borges, that I would have many questions uh, in the translations of the prose having to do with uh, contemporary references, uh, to make those clear to the reader, uh, the kind of questions that I simply, by the nature of poetry, would not have in the translations of the poetry. A uh, whole book of poems, I might have three or four questions, whereas uh, a book of short stories, I might have 50 or 60 questions. So it, it differs markedly. Bill, do you have any... Well, I just think that most editors don't... They're like um, high school teachers in a certain way in, their re in respect to poetry. They don't know much about it. And they are terrified and in awe of it. And that it leads to a hands-off approach. And, um, well, ask yourself, in a given major publishing house, how many people are known in that house as the person who does poetry? One person in an entire major publishing house? <laughs> or are there more, but they simply don't get to do it and want? So I think that in itself, um, that statistic is in itself is some kind of, and I'm not necessarily talking about a more literary house uh, such as Farrah Strauss, but, uh, well, if that much poetry is not being published by the major houses, then how are there going to be all these skilled people waiting around to fall upon these manuscripts and go to work on them? So I just don't think they're there. And I think, in fact, the entire thrust of the way we educate people to read and appreciate poetry in this society leads to a terror of poetry. And as someone who's worked in the writing in the schools programs for about 15 years, I see this beginning to happen in the third grade. Um, uh, both the teachers and the kids are terrified by Shakespeare by the time they get to be sophomores. Uh, you get to the sophomore year in high school. So I don't think this is, it's strange that this is reflected in how poetry is edited and finally published uh, in this country. And of course, this goes for translations as well. Uh, excuse me. Poetry is not published in most trade publishers because it loses vast amounts of money. Therefore, you will, if you actually look at the major trade publishers, you will see simply that, and you look at their lists over, say, the last 25 years, you will simply see that publisher after publisher have stopped publishing poetry 
or publish simply their backlist. Well, then that must mean that the the edit, editing of poetry has become a kind of vestigial uh, proposition. It seems to me. So, if this is, you know, there must be a uh, there must be a a comparative rate of decline in the editing skills of poetry if poetry itself is being published less no, and less. No, not necessarily, home. because poetry is being published by fewer and fewer houses. And in the houses... That's what I'm saying. Yes, and in the houses where it is still published, you will find more than one, and often all the editors doing some poetry. You do not have any more situation. Two, two or three books a year? Well, if you are a house that is not... The houses which have great means are not have great means because they're not interested in doing that in publishing. The houses like my own and others, which don't have, which would like to publish more, don't have the means to publish a book of poetry. Means an average loss of twelve or fourteen thousand dollars in a publishing house which does business of say ten million a year gross. That's a great deal of money, and that's uh, with no advertising too. It's quite that's remarkable. Right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it just seems to me that uh, this is a whole problem of uh, publishing costs and how um, how money is spent in publishing, but that's a whole other panel. Oh. Uh, Bill, I would like to ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, what kind of editing would you expect of an original poem? I have published original poetry, and the kind of editing I do is to say this particular image doesn't come off for me mm -hmm. or this whole poem I don't like. I think you ought to leave it out. And that's it. I don't do anything else. And that is really, in essence, all you do with a translation of poetry. You say, I don't think this is one of the poet's better poems. Well, I think it's possible or to it's not a good poems. translation. I think it's possible to improve poems. I think it's possible to suggest, and I do it um, uh, 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 perhaps recklessly but fearlessly, to suggest mm -hmm. whole new lines, lines to suggest uh, dropping this metaphor, this image, this section. Mm -hmm. So I think that, and I, I don't mean this to sound like a piece of self-congratulation, but uh, I think that if you understand how a poem works and how a particular poet works, which is maybe, uh, how a particular poet works, which is maybe more to the point, I th and I think if you can get that deeply inside the work, which means you are somehow vibrating to it, then you can walk through it almost as if it was your work. And then ultimately these suggestions, which is all they are, are going to be taken or not by the poet. And if the poet feels they improve the poems, fine. But I have done um, you know, serious reconstructive work on poems, which ended up in books. And, um, uh, and at other points, the manuscript was what it was when I got it. So I think almost anything can be done if it works and if the original poet will accept it. Every book is different. Yeah, every book is different. Obviously, this can't be done with translation, or it can only be done to a certain extent, because then you come up against the wall of what is that text doing in the original. Uh, let me move on to my next question, which I will ask Ricca. Uh, there's a contract has been signed. Uh, let's say it's to translate in the first instance a book on a work for hire basis. That is to say, there's a flat fee, there's no royalty. Uh, or, on the other hand, to make another scenario, uh, you've been the contract is signed. It's 
for the same book, but you'll get a royalty. You might get less money initially, but you have a stake in the success in this book officially. Uh, uh, you you get a royalty, maybe two and a half percent. All right. Uh, is the is the translator's commitment to the task uh, of the one any greater or less than the other? Work for hire or um, or royalty? What do you think? How do you feel about it? I would say that. Um Fortunately or un, I try to approach each book I do with commitment. Um, if if I could be paid, if houses could pay, large publishing houses could cut you into the royalties on the books they know they believe will succeed, then that would be a very good reason to do a fine job on that and to do a lousy job or a hack job on um, books that they didn't believe would succeed. It's a very difficult position. I don't, it's a very difficult question. I think practically speaking, a translator may end up having to do, having to give what they're paid for. That is, whether it's a high fee or whether it's a royalty is, um, as a translator, I, have a, I feel I have a commitment to the text. And if it's a text not of my choosing, then I'm likely to um, want to get the most money out of it that I can. I'm speaking practically. I'm not speaking about the way I have worked in the past. I think what happens because of the financial situation is that it gets harder and harder to get the experienced translators to go on translating because they can earn their living more easily in different ways. Uh, David, uh I, I assume that uh, you've worked with translators who have been paid, paid a, a flat fee and those who've uh, had a royalty. Have you found uh, that that has made a difference in, in, the, in, the, in the quality of their work or in their cooperative effort with you? <laughs> no. Um, I find this whole question utterly absurd. I have to tell you, uh, first of all, I would never hire a translator to do the kind of books I do, which are not commercial books, by and large, unless they were very enthusiastic about the book to begin with. I, would, I, don't, hire, I don't call up translator X, and how could I, given the fact that the blandishments of money are not exactly dazzling, and say, you know, you want to do, you know, we're not talking here about, you know, Mitterrand's memoirs, we're talking about, you know, some... Latin American author or Russian poet. Presumably the people that I am approaching for such translations are people who have great stake and interest in doing that kind of work. So that, first of all, the notion that someone's going to do a shoddier job according to the amount of money paid is preposterous. Second, you know, the, the differentials which you're talking about are so small 
that in fact, you know, the difference between in actual money between say $45 per thousand English words and $60 per thousand English words representing a lower and a higher sum of money do not come out when you actually total them up to very much money. So the notion that if you get 60, you'll do a slam-bang job, and if you do get 45, you're going to sort of slough off, seems to not, that has never happened to me. Second point is that, you know, this, this question of royalties in the cases, again, of literary books which don't sell is something of a red herring. The fact of the matter is that it's not as simple as saying work for hire versus royalty. A royalty is a flat amount of money given without conditions to a translator. Work for hire, uh, sorry, uh, royalty sums, the monies advanced are given as an advance and they are applied against royalties, which means that in, say, 99 out of 99 and a half cases, the translator never sees a dime past the monies first uh, paid out. That is the reason why uh, th a lot of good translators, sort of senior translators, continue to accept and even prefer, Ralph Mannheim is an obvious example, work for higher arrangements because it, on the sort of take the money and run principle. So I think that, first of all, is utterly uh, is a distinction which, with the exception of, say, the Umberto Eco book or the occasional book that really says, or a very commercial translation like, say, Albert Speer's memoirs, uh, by and large, the translations we're talking about are, are, are financial tra transactions in which the translator is not going to make any more money than the money first advanced. That's the first thing. Second, I, I must say, I agree entirely with Rick about the inability of people to make a living translating. I must add, however, that it's impossible for a publishing house to stay in the black publishing translations, at least a trade house of the kind I work for. And so that, you know, more and more we are in a situation where a great deal of the translations we do are, in effect, iliomocenary activities. I mean, might as well face the bad news right away. And we are not disposed, by and large, to give translators the monies they deserve because we are simply, we are going to lose those monies and we have the choice between having a, a publishing more and paying the wages that are being paid now or publishing really very little and having people properly paid. This is, mind you, a situation that is also obtains in the publication of first novels, in the advances for American poetry and across the board in publishing. A lot of the phenomena we're talking about this evening are phenomena which do not only apply to translation. And I think it's rather important to keep that in mind. That you know, this is not so translator is not translation and the whole business aspect of it is not some little cubby hole. The reason why you have something like Sun Press is also the reason why you have publishers doing certain kinds of American books which can't be published by trade houses anymore. And certainly in the sense of revivals or Jacob or that sort of thing, that's something that's largely not feasible anymore given the economics of publishing. Now the other question that really has to be addressed in all this is that um, while it's true that people who have tried to make a living solely as translators are finding it hard.
or any number of people you mentioned, people who are very well known. The same is true of translators. Alfred McAdam at Columbia, who very well-known translator. Gregory Rabassa teaches at the City University. He doesn't make money doing Jorge Amado and Garcia Marquez. And I think it's very, you know, that is a situation and a development in uh, the publishing world at the moment. Anybody have anything to add? Oh, just a, one short note, and that is that there is no such thing as a bargain translation. I learned from bitter experience it often happens that uh, uh, you'll take a agree to do a translation with a with a British publisher, a, a book in translation, and the British publisher will say, "I can get this translated for you very cheaply. You don't have to pay forty or sixty dollars <laughs> thousand words and it's a disaster. It never fails to be a disaster. There's no such thing as a bargain translation. All right, let me move on to the you know, final question here. Uh, uh, it sort of pulls, I think, uh, the various other questions and the things we've been talking about together. Uh, the literary translation is, is a cooperative venture. Well, let me say all books are cooperative ventures. Uh, uh, for it to be successful, a book has to, uh, for a book to come out successfully, uh, uh, everybody has to work together well, and uh, one cranky production manager or, 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 uh, or, uh, or, a, um, or a designer who is, who is, who is a prima donna-ish will throw the whole thing off, uh, set a bad tone about it. But once again... For translation, there are many more people involved, usually. Uh, you have the author, or if the author is dead, you will have scholars, experts in the author, and or the author's heirs. Uh, you'll have a translator, you'll have an editor, uh, uh, you'll have some of those experts we were talking about. Uh, and in the end, who is responsible for bringing the manuscript uh, into its final publishable form. Uh, Bill, can you talk about that? Um, well, I think you've indicated the answer yourself, and it is all of these people. Um, <laughs> that's all I have to say. <laughs> um, generally, um, at least it has been our experience that the whole permissions angle going through an estate if the author, most of the authors we've translated are, are, are not living. But generally, we have found that fairly cut and dry because, for better or for worse, the, m many of the works that we've chosen to do have somehow not been picked up. The Jacob, by the way, is not a, a, a revival. It's the first publication of this guy's work in a book in English, uh, which after 50 years, to me, is quite amazing. Um, in any event... Um, so we have not experienced massive uh, permissions difficulties, and that's probably because we're a small outfit and we really know what we're going after, and we simply say right up front, can't pay you much money. Uh, Bill, I didn't mean permissions so okay. much as... as, as um, well, that's where the heirs come in, though. You know, I mean, these are the, if there's an estate... As there is in the case of Max Jacob, you have to deal with the last living relative of Max Jacob. So, 
who that's part of getting the book done. Right. And sometimes know. they carry a certain special kind right. of a banner. Madame Andre Breton wants to review every translation of Andre Breton's work. Great. Does she have the final word? Um, I don't know yet. <laughs> we'll see. You know, that'll be interesting. Um, uh, living authors, I can't talk a lot about that. Um, Michel Larry seems happy that uh, with Lydia Davis's work, and he's happy that his book, uh, the first volume, is being translated. The scholars, the people who you will ask to look at a translation for whatever reasons, whether you might have some doubts or you just like the way people go through um, uh, a translation, um, that's more or less part of the process. Um, some, particularly with um, books that may be translated by a first, they may be a first book by a translator. Um, and things are a little shaky here and there, both either in English and maybe in the translation, you'd want somebody to go through it. And the translator probably wants somebody to go through it, and I've never had any difficulties with that. Um, and then, um, finally, though, somewhere in all of this, uh, or, or above all of this, or throughout all of this, there's that transaction the essential transaction is the transaction that takes place between the translator and the text by the original author. I don't think any, any of us would disagree with that. Um, I have not experienced horrible nightmares that have made it impossible to produce any given book. And maybe um, I've been lucky. We've done... Um, Dead authors make that much easier. Yeah, sure, you're absolutely right. There's no, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and who knows? Michel Larisse may drive us crazy. You know, when it, and he has the right to review Lydia Davis's translation. So I may want to take a, the Concorde over to France and and um, hire the first hitman I can find. Uh, <laughs> not nice. So I think that all of these factors enter in, as you have well pointed out, they have to be um, orchestrated, they have to be uh, um, mixed in the meal that's being prepared, um, but ultimately something has to come out uh, that looks uh, in English like uh, this book in the other language. So uh, I don't know if that's a very intelligent answer, but... Uh, it's an answer. Rika, um, what happens? <laughs> uh, what happens when, uh, when when questions arise about your text, the, the translated text? Um, have you ever been in without naming names, etc.? Have you ever been in a position where you find you have to uh, uh, you have to guard your work, or that you that 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 you have to. You're asked to yield to somebody else's opinion that you're not, uh, you're not quite sure if they have the authority. Do you consider yourself to have literally the authority, the authorial authority as the translator of this text? How willing are you to compromise uh, uh, with, uh, with these other people? And whom do you turn to? Uh, in a dispute, do you turn to, 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 to an outside expert? Do you turn to your editor? Uh, do you knock on the publisher's door? 
I think there is no final authority, and that's the problem. <laughs> I think that um, it's much easier for a translator writer as to feel authoritative about just as publishers will, it's much easier to deal with the dead than with the living because they've already stood up to some test of time and we're all sort of shaky about contemporary writing. If I'm translating a contemporary writer, I may consult with him or her. And are they the authority? They're the authority in their language. Um, am I the authority in my language? I try to be. I also like to, I do like suggestions from editors. I don't necessarily agree with them, and I do compromise. I say, yes, that's right, but no, that's wrong in the context of this book and this author's work. And it's give and take all of the way. Ralph Mannheim uh, said that he always lets his editors have one or two things uh, their way because yeah. afterwards they're easier to work with. <laughs> Marion, uh, what do you feel about this? I mean, uh, you're working on a book. Uh, everybody has a different opinion. Everybody has yes. Strong's opinion yes. about it. Yes. Uh, you've got to get that manuscript into production in three weeks. Uh, 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 what do you do? Uh, you take a very hard line, if you're me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you run into this in particular when the original author is the one who has chosen the translator and then finds that the translator the original author has chosen has come up with a translation that does not please the original author and you're back at square one. Uh, if all other things being equal you find it an acceptable translation, and other people at the publishing house and authorities find it an acceptable translation, unless the author wants to take back the rights to the translation and make a, a and sue you, you'll go ahead with it because the original author isn't always right. The original author doesn't always know what is a good translation. David, do you have anything to add to this, or any? Uh, I take a very soft <laughs> line. Uh, I think that if I, if there's one person whose opinion I want, whose whose pleasure I wish to uh, garner, it's the author, assuming it's a living author, and assuming this person is not a psychopath. And I must say, I find it slightly bizarre that authors at least in, in your formulation, are being described as utterly sort of mad cave men and women. Uh, I, I think that, finally, the, the most important name on the book is the name of the author, and that is my practice with American authors, and that is certainly my practice with foreign authors. It is certainly true that that means things take more time, that when they say something has to go into production in three weeks, you're, you say, sorry, it's probably going to come in about three months. But I think that finally it is the writer, assuming the writer is interested, whose happiness I wish to secure. That does not mean that someone who thinks they speak English but in fact doesn't speak it at all is to be pandered to, but it does mean and I, my experience, frankly, is that more authors, foreign authors, 
know something about the faults of their translations than complain irrationally. And that if there's fault, it tends to be with editors who want to put it through quickly and say, all right, well, this is sort of all right. Uh, let's, let's do it. Rather than with, with the, these writers in their various foreign countries, who I think often see quite clearly faults. And I, would, I, I certainly want compromise, and it's always a compromise, of course. It's a compromise between the author, the translator, and the editor. But whenever possible, I would like to ensure that compromise, even if it means getting the books out much later, and even if it means a lot of pain and distress and screaming phone calls and all the rest along the way. Do you have anything to add? I don't know to hear about this, 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 the, the strain of bringing out a book and bringing everything together, or everybody together. Uh, it sounds as though that, that, that that actually um, we have two editors here who say that uh, uh, they feel responsible for the, the final text. Uh, uh, that, um, the implication is that, you, know, that you, you will take more time to make sure that the book is, 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 is uh, of the, uh, the finished manuscript is of the quality that's necessary to be published. Um, oh, I didn't say I would not take I think more time. No, no, no I didn't say that you didn't. Right. So no. that in a sense that, that we're talking, though, in this particular instance, that, that it really is the editors that the translators will turn to, ultimately. Do you feel that way, Rebecca, rather than the outside <laughs> expert? I, I mean, I'm is the editor the compromiser? I think the editor... Or editors. Um, I mean, one wishes one could, on every book, have the same editor staying at the same publishing house. That does not always happen, and books get lost. So I think if you're working with an editor and you think the editor's going to stay there and bring the book through, yeah, yeah, you leave it with the editor finally. But there still are there's still proofs. There's still all of these other points where everyone at the last minute may say, here's yet another thing to go over. And it's a never-ending process of decision-making and compromise and change. It does, I think the editor feels in the end that he's put it all together. I think the translator feels that he or she has put it together. And I think the original author is never is, happy. Is never, <laughs> well, some original authors are very happy and will say immediately, yes, I know English, but I am in no position to judge a translation of my work into it. That's a, nice That's a very nice author. I must say, I don't tend to take that answer from an author. I mean, just speaking of my own practice, which is when an author says to me, I don't want to look at it, I say, you are going to look at it and attempt to persuade them to do so. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're not going to look at it. I would say that there are a number of authors in Scandinavia, for example, who will um, they'll look at it and they have an idea of where they can be helpful and they also have an idea of when to let go. And I think in the whole process, we each have to know. The translator has to know when to let go. The editor has to know when to let go. And the author has to know when to let go. Yeah, author anxiety separation. <laughs> I spend a lot of time um, haggling and arguing and 
demanding and insisting and pleading and, and succumbing to the translator because uh, since uh, we do publish, many of our books are by writers who are not living, um, the translator in a sense stands for the author. And that's a very serious um, stance and it's one that has to be respected and, um, and sometimes uh, it has to be seriously challenged. But uh, we do, for that reason, I do spend a lot of uh, time arguing very fine points with translators. And um, as always, one has to, to give in and, and insist. And it's a continual process, as Ricka points out. As, and as we all know, it's a continual process of nego negotiation. It uh, never ends. Yeah. I remember a case of a book that we put under contract a Latin American author and the translator was a very famous and wonderful translator and uh, it was his idea to do the book. He worked closely with the author on the book. It was covered a period of about three years. It was a very difficult book to translate and in the end we all decided together that the book was untranslatable. It was never published. It's true. There simply was no way to translate that book. And if anybody could have done it, this was the translator to do it. And well, he finally had maybe later afterwards you'll tell us what it was. <laughs> I'd love to know what it was. <laughs> but it's interesting. I think when you when you decide something's untranslatable, it's untranslatable at this point in time. Yes, and it's possible. that's something always to remember. Yeah. That we don't always know what can be done. But there was a lot of work that went into it uh, by the author, by the translator, and by the editor. Well, in and in fact, I think many works, uh, particularly many works of literary modernism, have not been translated because they are still deemed untranslatable, and yet, mm -hmm. as time goes on, somehow we slowly begin to be given these works. Uh, so that's one of the reasons Sun is around. <laughs> I'd like to open up questions to the floor, unless the panelists have anything to add uh, to, to what we've been saying. Uh, come up to the microphone, please. My name is Ernst van Hagen. I'm a freelance translator. I translate a great many words every day, for the most part just ephemeral commercial material. Uh, occasionally uh, uh, literary or paraliterary material. Uh, I just want to say from the point of view of the working translator that no matter what the material or the original. I always, I think continuously, think of the writer, whoever he may be, a novelist, a poet, some businessman in South America, as uh, one of the key components of, of my audience. My translations are designed to satisfy readers, not so much stylistically, but uh, 
in terms of the practical decisions that are going to be based on my translations. Uh, ephemeral translations have the advantage over poetry and, and uh, uh, fiction that although there's no authority, there is a test. People are going to do things on the basis of the translation. Uh, their decisions are uh, going to be determined. So the translations have to fit reality insofar as the originals do. The poetry doesn't do that. Well, it does. It does in a way, except that nobody, nobody can tell by a laboratory test. Whereas the the uh, translator of factual material has a laboratory. Or uh, well, I can tell you, I can give you moments in my own history as a human being where poems have changed my consciousness and led to action. I don't believe that poetry exists. Most certainly, but you can hold neither the poet nor the translator responsible for that, and that's different. So we don't. Well, I don't know. I don't think it is. Well, anyhow, I'm sorry, you wanted to make a statement. Is there a particular question, yeah. or are you just throwing yes. it off? Yes, well, yeah. the, the, uh, uh, in other words, uh, a translation ought to be designed. That's an essential part of the job, I think, to satisfy an author. Uh, not even if, or insofar as the author doesn't know too much English, if English is what's in question. Uh, a translator has a multiple task to perform uh, in any case, and one element of it is uh, uh, the issue of satisfying a living foreign author. Does anybody have anything to... Uh Comment. I would go so far as to say to satisfy dead authors as well. I mean, how would uh, Andre Breton want his work to look in English? He wouldn't want it to look like a museum piece the way most Andre Breton translations of poetry seem to look and sound. So, yeah, I, I, I think you can extend your, I would extend your work. Any other uh, questions? Uh, these are more mundane questions. I'd like to know if uh, translations are marketed differently than domestic books. If so, how? How differently? Uh, <coughs> David, can you respond to that? Well, I think the first and most obvious and most depressing thing that should be admitted right away is they're marketed as, largely speaking, they're marketed as books with a limited audience. And there's obviously a clear distinction in the way you market a book on sun signs and a Peruvian novel, even by a famous Peruvian novelist. So that most, it seems to me, most literary tr translations from po prose or poetry are uh, given less advertising than books which are assumed, rightly or wrongly, to have greater commercial possibility. Of course, there's no doubt that the publishers have been famously wrong at a rate of about one a year, uh, whether it's the endless story of Mikhail Ende 
or which Doubleday published and did fantastically well with, uh, whether it was the novel of um, Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose, or what have you, there have been, uh, Garcia Marcus is another example, even Mara Vargas Llosa to a certain extent has the audience of uh, a, a sort of good-selling American writer, literary writer. But there's no doubt that, that the, speaking from the point of view of trade publishers, that they are marketed less aggressively. I don't think, however, that they're marketed all that differently from the books in the sort of area of sales into which it's assumed they fall. That is, I, for example, don't see that the work of a foreign poet at least in my list, and I think is from observation and others, uh, is marketed differently than the work of a poet who writes in English. I certainly don't have the experience of thinking about an ad budget for Joseph Brodsky any differently than I would, say, for Derek Walcott, named two people from uh, Ferris Strauss and Giroux's list. And I don't see in other publishers this, this tendency. Is there, for example, a list of magazines that you would publish or that you would advertise a translation in <clears throat> more than... I mean, you wouldn't go to a lot of local newspapers. You'd go to certain magazines. Or? Well, as you know, probably local advertising is usually done in, in cooperative uh, activity with um, uh, local bookstores. Mm-hmm. So say if you're the Walden chain in Cleveland would want to take an ad out with the publisher and would propose that. They're extremely unlikely to do that with uh, foreign books. They, they're not seeing that much sales themselves. You, I think the biggest difference that you would see is that there is um, very little author touring that probably... Um, it, it would be customary for a fairly well-known American author to be sent on a tour of at least the cities where people still seem to be able to read. Um, the, the, this is not the case with a writer. It's partly expense. You're, partly not, you're, you're very unlikely to bring up a writer from uh, southern Italy uh, it, to, 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 to do that. And I think that that's to the extent that the tours sell books. That may be a way in which publishers, stupidly perhaps, um, hurt their own chances. If I may, I just have one more sure, short sure. question. What kind of time, um, average time, is allotted to say a hundred pages of tra- per one hundred pages of translation? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Time, the average time allotted by a publisher to a hundred pages per one hundred pages. You of mean editing time? Um, or? Well, translating time, how much, what is the average expected from an author, or is there an average? Um, I, have no, I have no average whatsoever. Okay. Um, I think when the job is done, it's done. It's, it's the same as any writer. About marketing, I think you can expect, um, does anybody have anything no. to add? I could add one thing, is that ultimately uh, books are sold in a sort of a, basically a one-on-one basis. It's the, it's the salesman. Uh, in the bookstore with a book buyer. He's got me, 15 to, th- yeah, that, 15 to 30 seconds to convince them to, to put two or three or four books on those shelves. Yeah. And they're talking about 
usually ones and twos and threes. Yeah. It, it should be pointed out, I mean, as long as we're talking grim reality, as long as I'm playing Cassandra in this particular group, it seems to me that, you know, I should point out to you that when a salesman goes into a large bookstore, even for that matter a small one, they usually have approximately 15 minutes to show the entire list, which usually means you're flipping through a notebook as a sales representative, and you, are, you will try to get a one or two sentence handle on the book in question. The bookseller has usually seen the catalog in advance and made up his or her mind how many he or she is going to take anyway. So the whole activity, to some extent, is so fast, and to some extent you could say aesthetically so irresponsible, that it, it isn't very likely that no matter you know, how glorious the cover design is or anything else, that suddenly a, a place that has not sold, say, foreign books well is suddenly going to devote a window to them. Uh, Marion's schedule uh, about three, four years ago was on a panel at the first Writers' Congress. And somebody asked about how asked you about uh, how well translations is it true that uh, our translations don't sell? And I recall that you said, well, most books don't sell, and most translations don't sell as badly as well or as badly as anything else. Uh, any further questions from the floor? Please. I'd just like to raise the question of reviews of translated books. Um, I may it would be sufficient stimulus for you to respond to, but I'd like to throw one or two thoughts in after it. When, when I first contemplated the business of translating a whole book, one of my recurrent night nightmares was waking up one morning screaming because I imagined I'd seen my name in the review as having adequately translated something I'd spent a year slaving over. Authors feel much the same way. The whole question of, no, but with translations, I know the dismissive adverb, particularly in mm -hmm. something adequately translated by, the dismissive mm -hmm. adjective, in a competent translation by. And there seems to be a dilemma. The translator is not exactly in the grip of the dilemma himself, but he is, in a sense, the victim of it. Either a reviewer is chosen because he's a reviewer of the book and quite innocent of the original language or he may have been chosen because he's probably in the professoriate an expert on the language. And it seems to me you may lose on the deal either way. If he's innocent of the language, at the best you may get the dismissive adverb or nothing at all, which may be good or bad. If he's an expert, I've often felt that he has a kind of self-esteem vested interest in savaging the translation, otherwise he's not doing what he's paid for. But I'd just like your reactions to some of those thoughts. Uh, anybody have any immediate reaction? Well, I think uh, they're, they're good points. Um, and uh, yes, I've, I've, I've noted that phrase, adequately translated or competent, competent translation by. Competent means, you know, just basic English grammar and syntax. There's, there's no... <laughs> There's certainly no uh, prizes being passed out. Um, I think it's a. I think it's. Um, and of course, you can't imagine uh, a reviewer for the New York Times going, you know, line by line through the translation to figure out whether this is an adequate translation or not. I'm sure it just doesn't happen. And unless, as you say, a professor gets a hold of it, and then it could be another. Also, um, there was. 
I'm trying to remember exactly what book it was, but the translation was attacked and no examples were given of what was wrong with the translation. This was um, French translation, recent, recent vintage. Um, and then you, then you get into the area of really what are variant readings and, and the, the interpretation that the translator has to have, uh, the ability to interpret that the tra translator uh, can't be deprived of. And these often become the um, arena for endless drubbings of the translator. When in fact, uh, if the translator had an opportunity to defend the readings, uh, in many cases, um, it would all come out even. So uh, I think this is a very good consciousness. For me, it's a very good consciousness raising point to uh, maybe we should all send letters the next time we see the phrase adequate translation appear in the New York Times book review or elsewhere and ask just what, what kind of sloppy editing this is and what, it, what does this mean. So maybe, uh, you know, it's kind of like... Um, I wouldn't wait for Mike Levitas to answer you on that. <laughs> yeah, well... I can, I'd like to say something, if, uh, to be fair to book reviewers, and then I'll be unfair to book reviewers. First, to be fair to book reviewers, uh, translators and writers' organizations in the past, over oh, the past couple of decades have put continual pressure uh, for translators' names to be mentioned and something to be said. Uh, by the book reviewers that it is, in fact, a translation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the reviewers feel they have to say something, but they don't know what to say. But they know they have to say, say something because all otherwise they'll be taken apart for not saying anything. Uh, to be perhaps un, unfair to book uh, reviewers or, being, or to speak honestly about book reviewing, uh, if they are going to say something... Uh, it's easier to say something bad about a book as a book reviewer than to praise it. Uh, you can write a very entertaining review by, as you say, savaging something. It's, you'll write a very boring review if you love the book, usually. Uh, and I think that that um, uh, uh, the the savaging of a translation on the is 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 about the easiest way that they can go about it. Once again, it's. It's Rabas's uh, Dr. Horrenda uh, picking it apart uh, because otherwise they really have nothing to say. Can I, I defend reviewers? Sure. I was fair I think this is really entirely unfair and quite, quite scurrilous, actually. Um, I think that there are a great many very good reviewers, regular reviewers, and they're ranging from, say, John Updike and the other people who review from The New Yorker to uh, people, indeed, in the provincial press. And I think that this notion of the possibilities between being sort of Joe Palooka out there in Minneapolis, who you know wouldn't know a foreign language if it bit him on the bottom, and Dr. Horrendo up there at Ivory Tower U, sort of picking at every phrase, does not in any way reflect what actually goes on in reviewing. I think people are actually reasonably well-intentioned, reasonably civilized and trying to the extent that they can to do a decent job. I think that's as true of, there are a lot of bad translations and a lot of translations that deserve savaging. It's not just the peak of some professor who was not chosen. There are also a lot of unfair reviews as there are many unfair things. It is, 
again, the danger of this whole conversation, indeed this evening, is to try to separate the act of translation or the problems of translating and the publication of translations from the general question of publishing books or writing books in America. Indeed, it is always easier to write a bad review than write a good one. That's absolutely true. But it's just as true of reviewing a first novel by an American writer as it is of reviewing a translation. The one thing that you said that I thought was absolutely correct and which is, is it seems to me, the more interesting part of the, the subject matter is, is that the translation or the act of translation has, I think, in the mind of reviewers, largely been a sort of transparent activity. That is to say that I think that when a reviewer gets a book, say a book by a distinguished foreign writer, whether it's a Michel Lerice or a whomever, they consider that their principal task is to make a judgment about the work of this writer and the book which they uh, have... A, been assigned to review, and that perhaps unjustly, but to some extent understandably, the translation, except when it's objectionable, is given perhaps less attention than it deserves. But that is understandable to some extent as a reader. When, you first, when any of you first read Tolstoy, I rather suspect the first thing you thought was not, is this a good translation? You thought about the novel you read. And I do think that reviewers follow that pattern. I think it's very useful to have events like this, and I think translators do a kind of work that, that they don't get sufficient credit for. But I think that the impulse uh, that reviewers so often give into, that is only to mention the translation in passing, is, it doesn't, is not a kind of... Uh, you know, kernel of their venality or ignorance, which I think is somewhat been implied and in some of the answers. And ultimately, being a translator, a translator is a writer, a specialized kind of writer, and any writer takes an enormous risk when it goes public. Uh, are there any other questions? Could I, could I just add something to your response? Um, I think I, I've often detected that. Um, Books that a reviewer does not like, uh, in reviews of books that a reviewer does not like, I have seen the translation attacked, and it seems to me that the reviewer was clearly working off um, further unhappiness with the book on the translator. And um, I can't produce any uh, evidence for that, but uh, just keep reading. So I think... Um, this is a complicated issue, and just as all of the people sent letters to the New York Times or to whatever journal when they were sick of seeing everyone called Miss, um, maybe we should start sending letters when we see um, competent translation. Maybe they should just say, in a translation by so-and-so, maybe that's just enough right now, unless they really know what they're doing. We had a question from you. Yeah. Sorry. I'd like to go back to the beginning of the process again and ask a question, really advice. Um, I know you mentioned something about the, um, which is very natural, the inclination to ask your authors and established translators for recommendations. But uh, let's assume that I have an idea for a translated volume and I'm not in that coterie of um, well-knowns. 
and I want to uh, I want to send an idea to a publisher. How much should I uh, describe? How much should I send? Um, it may be an unorthodox idea, uh, perhaps a collection uh, of stories or essays instead of just a single volume. Could you offer any advice on uh, how best to go about that? Well, my advice is to send a pretty comprehensive uh, uh, summary of what you have in mind and, uh, whenever possible, a sample. Because obviously one of the reasons that people, editors, editors of my acquaintance, at any rate, tend to deal with uh, people they already know is they already are sure of the quality of the translation. Uh, it's... If you... Obviously, uh, you can do it in a two-stage procedure, which may be the most efficient, which is to say, are you interested in, I don't know, the collected stories of uh, Silvino Campo, to name a project that's been making the rounds in New York Publishing for about the last 40 years. Um, the, uh, and then if someone says, yes, let's have a look, then you really ought to send a sample. The other question, from a practical point of view, is you really have to find out if you have the rights to this, these materials. Uh, remember that a lot of, in many cases, the foreign publisher has already an agent trying to sell the writer in question in the United States and uh, the representative of that publisher uh, often does not take kindly to sort of uh, interlopers. So you should probably try to see what, what the right situation is, at least after the first letter of inquiry. You can do that obviously without checking out. Marion, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, I think that a letter of inquiry uh, has to be uh, pretty detailed. Uh, go on the assumption that the writer you are translating from is totally unknown to the people at the publishing house that you write to and uh, marshal all the evidence, uh, academic or otherwise, that you can find to support your uh, opinion of that writer as being worth publishing, worth translating, uh, then uh, I think it's not a bad idea at all uh, to uh, attach a short sample translation, even with the letter of inquiry. Uh, because if it's a really good translation, it will spark interest. Any other questions? I think we all agree that the ideal translation is invisible and that the translator is transparent. Um, and I think most we publishers... Do? Wait a minute. I don't. <laughs> no, really? No. I think in general, the uh, feeling has been that publishers would like to have a book they can sell as if it were being uh, read in the original language. And I, I haven't had a chance to read all this so far, uh, read what the latest idea is, but uh, how? Uh, what's the current stand on uh, how much should a translator insist on his names being included in all advertising on the paper uh, 
cover and so forth, uh, in addition to the title page and the copyright page. Uh, I remember that uh, in general, my experience with publishers has been that they would rather not have a mention of the fact that it's, the book is, any, any mention of the translation, even if it's positive, draws attention to the fact that you're not reading uh, the author in the original. And I think, for example, in the review of the Sartre uh, diaries that we had in the Times, wasn't it last Sunday, the fact that there was no, no mention of the translation probably reassured people. It meant that they were reading, uh, that if they bought the book, they would be getting Sartre in a sort of uh, direct, uh, unadulterated version. But the translation is the translator is mentioned in the headline. In the headline, yes. Yeah. I think now that that has been established that in that any review yeah. you will get it in the uh, in the uh, uh, summary of uh, of the of the thing. But I remember the first book I translated. I was very relieved to see that there was a mention effortlessly effortlessly translated by. That was very ironic to me because it hadn't been at all <laughs> effortless. And yet, it, 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 if there were any mention at all, it's good that it. It was a positive and not adequately or competently or inadequately translated by. But I think in general, my experience with publishers has been that they'd rather not have any attention brought to the fact, called, uh, drawn to the fact that the uh, book has been translated, that, uh, that, that the reader is not getting uh, somehow a miraculous version of the uh, text as the author wrote it. I don't know if this is something peculiarly American, um, but... I remember when I was a kid, my parents um, bought those, you know, things that you could back, get, those sets of volumes of the classics that you could get on the back of Parade magazine, you know, Tolstoy and Oscar Wilde and all this stuff. And <laughs> none happy of those couple. books. I'm sorry? No, it's just the, the couple thing, though. Too. N uh, none of those books were ever presented as being a translation. <laughs> Oscar Wilde. Wasn't. I thought that the uh, I thought that the um, uh, well, there was Chekhov, you know, on and on and on. Uh, so I thought for years that uh, uh, that everybody wrote in English, and I think there's oddly there's something of that in this impulse that um, there's some kind of American um, paranoia, uh, xenophobia, if you will. Um, and uh, I, I remember also thinking that Jules Verne was Jules Verne, you know, for, uh, you're shaking your head so I can't be completely crazy. Uh, that he, and and I remember when I found out that Jules Verne was, a, was French, I was absolutely astounded. So I think that, uh, and how did all this stuff get into English anyhow? And maybe that's when I first began, began to think that things got translated. So, um, I think that there's, there's some kind of wacky connection that I'm making here, that there is an impulse, I think, to erase the identity of the translator. And on, on all of our books and whatever advertising we do, which we, we can't do a lot of because we don't have much money, but the translator's name is always up front. So um, people should know that. Uh, I must say, I, I don't know if you've ever done a book for us and maybe you have a hideous experience, but, uh, <laughs> but I... I do not feel either that we are that people are such fools out there.